This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups, and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what, you, what you've worked on and, and go from there. Let's do it. Sure. Uh, sure. Well, thanks, Chris, for this opportunity. Um, I uh, have spent my career working in emerging markets, um, and so started in South Asia working um, on clean energy startups, and then moved to East Africa working other clean energy startups. So um, I found the opportunity of clean energy really compelling because um, uh, vast majorities of these populations don't have access to any electricity, yet demand is very high for it. So it's a very fair, you know, product that's needed. And uh, so I got very interested in working in off-grid solar and some of these technologies to power homes that do not have electricity and addressing some of the market failures behind that. Um, so I spent a few years there and then um, came back to the U.S. I worked um, at the United Nations Foundation on the same issue. And then I joined Facebook working on energy access for connectivity uh, for a couple of years. And then I um, decided to start my own, uh, get to entrepreneurship myself. And then I, uh, uh, I launched an organization to address this as well. So that's a bit about my background and uh, some of the work I've done. Mm-hmm. Well, so were you, did you find any particular challenges working in, working in Africa that were, that you thought were noteworthy? Yes, definitely. So um, I think there's a lot of excitement right now for technology and fintech in Africa. Um, it's the number one area people are, investors are investing in in Africa is fintech. However, um, I still think the market is a little immature <laughs> for some of these technologies. Um, I, the, uh, mobile money, which is uh, sending m- money through your phone SMS versus like a Venmo uh, is extremely popular, but mm-hmm. it's become a very regulated market. So even though there's a lot of users, um, the governments have tried to reap some benefits and put pretty high taxes on it, which is completely right. plummeted usage. Yet still startups are have seen like, wow, so many people use it. So I can create a product and lots of people use it. And so a lot of people are trying and unfortunately failing, including myself, <laughs> at uh, looking at that opportunity. It's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a learning process. So I think that's the, um, uh, uh, the big challenge is it, it's a huge market for sure. I mean, you have over a billion people on the continent, mostly young who mm-hmm. are acquiring smartphones at like exponential rates, but using apps and software for productivity, for finances, this is still going to take time. 
Right, right. So all the, all the stuff we hear um, from a financial perspective, because I have financial services customers, and they're all saying, you know, Kenya is the place to look, right? This is where things are like really moved along. And I'm assuming it's very different in every country, right? So do you find that there's some areas where we're, where they're ahead of us? As opposed to, I mean, because I think I think in some areas they are ahead of us because in some areas there's less regulation, there's more of a greenfield. But are you, I guess are you finding? Did you find that? Um, so Kenya was definitely that's the market we worked into, and that mm-hmm. was kind of the one that all the startups were working in. So the right. nice thing about users is a lot of them have been bombarded by similar offerings, so they are not like new. Like, what is this? Like, they're like, oh, okay, this is another similar solution to this other one I saw yesterday. So the users are more comfortable with it. Um, So there is more of an opportunity, but then you also have more competition. So, Mm. um, so that's the challenge. Uh, The, um, the question about uh, opportunities and leapfrogging. um, So what I think has been really fantastic about the Kenyan market and also East Africa in general is um, offering, um, uh, asset-based financing in small, very small pieces. So people don't have credit scores, they don't have ways to, don't want to have collateral, so they don't have ways to purchase like a solar home system or a refrigerator or, you know, any kind of big item, forget about a house, <laughs> um, and pay in installments. Um, so a lot of tech companies came in saying, you know, we can look at other ways with technology to come up with a credit score so that people can pay in installments over time. And you've seen a lot of this type of like finance fintech in this sense. And that mm-hmm. has been, I think, more powerful for more poor consumers than poor consumers in the US who are pretty much traditionally completely locked out of right. any kind of, you know, financial opportunities. Right. right. So like a social credit score, right? Is that what we're exactly and, and, but how well has that worked? I mean, I know uh, sort of, if you think about a social credit score, you think about, okay, here's the, all the things that people do, which, you know, can increase a social credit score, and they have nothing to do with finan- financial things. So, I mean, it was it difficult to get people to sort of look at a, um, a social credit score and go, yes, that's actually valuable enough for us to l- lend against? Or, I mean, is that an issue? Yeah, so... One of the things about um, in, in these markets is people are incredibly um, tight with their communities. Um, and so uh, lenders are unwilling. Uh, one of the ways they're able to reduce their risk is by knowing, okay, who this person has, you know, grandparents, parents, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles. Yeah. And I, I will never worry about like where that person has fled to because everybody knows this person in this community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, that, I think that social network there and some FinTech companies have leveraged that to, um, build kind of a relationship profile. Um, because the, st- the theory is the stronger your relationships are with people in your community, the less likely you are to default. So, um, it's like the loners that you have to watch out for. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that model has, le- uh, um, lend itself to some of the more bigger fintech companies that are in East Africa who are pretty much focusing on that social credit score and making digital loans. Um, but I am a bit of a, 
uh, naysayer when it comes to digital loans because mm -hmm. I still find them quite predatory um, mm -hmm. because that credit risk profile, I mean, yes, this person could repay a loan and because they have a family network, you're feeling less uh, concerned about it. But the monthly interest rates on these loans are like 25%. Yikes. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are they, are, they, are they like that because that's basically what the market is will bear or are they just trying to be predatory? Like if somebody came in with a 12% interest rate, would people just like flock to it or people would be like, I don't trust that? Oh, if someone over a 12% interest rate, people would flock to it, 100%. Okay. <laughs> it's incredibly cheap in Kenya and right. Uganda and these other countries. But the problem is, is um, the number of defaults make it really hard for lenders to make money off of interest. So they right. have to charge really high to make money off of the ones who are paying back. But right. is it fair alone? In my opinion, no. Because that's mm. such, it's such an expensive loan. Um, that only truly desperate people are going to take that. Like someone right. whose shop has burned down and have to take that loan as like the only way to like survive or, you know, like, like those types of people. Because the vast majority of people I spoke to about, about loan products through the FinTech we were developing were not interested. You know, they were like, you know, loans are really expensive. Like we're, uh, we're more interested in, you know, inventory financing because mm -hmm. our suppliers are giving us stock at our shops um and uh and it's it's more about paying back the money for the stock versus like my entire business and like understanding the entire business and so that was really interesting to me too and another insight i had was people are actually really don't like um uh people probing into their financial information mm -hmm. um, like it was scary for me like when I bought a house to like, yeah, for me to get, but I bought a house to give my mortgage lender, like literally every single information about how much I owned was scary. It was weird. Like that's the first person in my life who, who other than like my partner and I, who like knew how much money we had. It was really creepy. So that is also really disliked in this culture. Like people mm -hmm. don't want to open up and share you know, how much money their businesses are making. And so, um, which I thought was very interesting because that was not what I had thought before. Um, I yeah. the market. So the trust, the trust is inside the community and the family. It's not in the, in the vendor relationship, right? So no, the, there's no trust there actually. Yeah. It's yeah. a huge problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about it, that's really interesting because we're kind of going back to like the original reason, the original way we trusted people. I mean, how did we, how do we trust people prior to all of this? It's like, we, we know you, we know where you live, we know your family, we know you're a good, you know, over time you, you borrowed from us and we know you've paid back on time. So you kind of build up this, this real, like real trust, face-to-face -face person trust, which of course we can't do over the internet. But yeah, I mean, it seems that to me that there's a, that there's a, a way to sort of digitize this concept and turn it into something that's more useful, right? Because I mean, we all transact on the internet day in, day out. We do social transactions, we do monetary transactions, we do all this stuff. So it's almost like we could come up with some kind of a trust score for for people and say okay this person is trustworthy this one person is less trustworthy whatever almost like an aggregate like you're, you're it's like you know ebay ebay has kind of like that kind of score right and if we could just take that and aggregate all these other scores and say okay can't we just come up with a score per individual and say this person is trustworthy this person is less trustworthy whatever and then lend on that sort of thing 
I mean, is that is that the kind of thing that they were thinking of, or in addition to so, that? A lot of fintech lenders, the digital lenders, are doing are having to create their own scores and lend internally because mm -hmm. um, a lot of companies have tried to sell these scores to banks. And banks, they're not sort of banks here, are not tech savvy. They're not, um, they're very, very, very risk averse. And right. they might be interested, they'll enter conversations. Some might even do partnerships. But when it comes to like actual being customers <laughs> and like buying these types of technologies to use in their own day to day, it's incredibly hard. Um, so right. I found that myself when we were trying to sell our product to banks, but I also found that to through some of other fintech companies who had that early day story where they pivoted because they tried to get banks to use their product. It totally failed. And then they pivoted to basically become a competitor to a bank. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so that's, that's basically what I've seen. And I, I think a lot of people are trying to get banks and technology providers to work more closely together. Um, like a lot of governments and donor agencies, they see this opportunity, the UN, and so they're like trying to bring them together. But I haven't seen any successful examples of where a bank took on a FinTech partner to change the way they operate in making loans. I've seen that only in core banking solutions where they digitize their core banking, but not in terms of changing the methodologies. Right, right. So do you see, so what do you th think about uh, banks? So banks are kind of monolithic right now, right? They say they're, they're you know, one, one company that provides a bunch of different services, right? And uh, we're starting to see sort of the atomization of all this stuff, right? So instead of going to a bank for everything, you go to Quicken Loans for this, you go to Venmo for that, you go to, you know, whatever for, you know, Robinhood for this, whatever. Do you see, you see that trend continuing? I mean, is that, is that, ha it's, is that happening in, in Africa and places like that? Or is that something that's like a North American? Not, I mean, there are like Venmo-like startups. And there are Venmo-like startups happening. I've seen them in um, Tanzania and Nigeria specifically, um, where it's like peer-to-peer -peer payments. Um, mobile money, of course, is like the biggest competitor to banking. The telecoms operate that. But um, in terms of diversification of bank products, you don't see that much because mm -hmm. um, uh, the core population that uses banking are middle class and up. Most of these people are very poor, so they're either unbanked or they, if they really need money, they'll go to a microfinance institution and get a loan. Mm -hmm. um, those are kind of the financial opportunities available to them. Right. So, but do you think, do you think, so, so uh, pivoting to the first world, are you seeing that happening here and in other places where, I mean, uh, the banks losing their monopoly over having, you know, having, having customers that do everything with them. I think people are definitely going to challenger banks and like signing up quickly for online services because a lot of people are, especially like millennial generation, don't want to have to go to a banker to like do stuff, you know? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, that was actually a big question. I don't want, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, like you don't want to wait in line for the teller to cash a check. Like it's terrible. Like once banks started offering, you know, um, the mobile cash checking or bank check ca check cashing, um, it's been a game changer. And so I think a lot of these banks are realizing they have to be less in in person and more online. But I think the bigger banks are gonna are 
are slower to adapt to that culture versus like the new startup challenger banks who can just basically right. launch and offer great interest rates and you know you just contact their customer support if you need anything and so um like i personally use a challenger bank um i also uh uh was very very unhappy with uh, I, I don't want to name names, but <laughs> there's a bank I used for, for my first startup that required every time I sent money to Uganda, I had to go in person and it would take like 30 minutes to an hour because the teller didn't know where Uganda was and had to do all these checks and it was wow. really awful. And it was an awful experience. <laughs> and so, you know, now you have companies like TransferWise coming up who, where you can send, you know, now U.S. dollar to you on the shilling for mm -hmm. very low. And they're offering online banking as part of that. And that's just been a game changer. So right. they're going to be competing with these more innovative, more nimble uh, startups in that sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's let's pivot to startups in general because a lot of my uh, listeners are uh, startup founders. So I guess one of the things we talked about last time we talked was that um, you've had a lot of experience pitching, pitching your pitching your startup. Mm -hmm. Have any like any horror stories and good like good and bad stories of what's happened when you've been pitching things and maybe things that people can watch out for so that when they do when they do pitch their startups, the best way to do it and stuff like that. Sure, love to hear. Um, so uh, it's, you get a lot of advice when you're pitching. <laughs> like everybody, <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to tell you how it should be done, or you should do it this way, that way, blah, blah, blah. I think the key is to know which advice is not going to work for you and to use mm -hmm. the one that well. Um, and that requires some skill because sometimes you just want to listen to everyone and try to do everything, but it won't work for a pitch. Right. Um, what I found personally, and this may not be true for other startup founders but I didn't like the advice tell your own story because some of these companies are not that personally driven um mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's not like oh I my like uh I never had electricity and so I was bothered by that problem myself and now I feel like I need to work on it like, that's not true like, <laughs> yeah. like, kind of like TED, the TED talk uh, pitch right it's like oh my life is so horrible but I solved my problem and here's what I did <laughs> exactly and, and I don't think that's going to work for a lot of businesses and a lot of people right. push that narrative on and that didn't work for me because I was working with users that I am not African <laughs> I, I uh, grew up in the United States and I'm not intimate with the problem but I spent time in these countries and I got to understand the problem and I uh, um, and I because personally I cared about climate change and, um, and ecosystems, that's why mm -hmm. I started it. But starting a pitch that way isn't, I think, that compelling to an investor, personally. Right. Right. I think investors want to hear very quickly, what is your market, what problem in like a sentence, what is your market, and then go into solution. That's yeah. really what yeah. they want to hear. So I've seen pitches where people spend like three minutes talking about why they're doing this, Mm. No, those are terrible yeah. pitches. <laughs> so, so that's well, that kind of reminds me. That kind of reminds me of Homejoy. So you remember Homejoy? And yeah, I know. So and they they failed, right? So mm -hmm. I, I remember reading about how the founder had his problem and he founded Homejoy based on this problem that he had. But then you hear 
I mean, they failed because they didn't have enough demand. So they obviously, you know, just because the founder has a problem and the founder solves the problem doesn't necessarily mean that there's, that it's an actually a viable business, right? So that I think that's the thing that investors are looking for. Like, okay, great that you, you know, this is what triggered you to start this, this startup and made you go do this. But it's still like, that has nothing to do whether it's viable and that's nothing to do with what, whether investors want to uh, sort of like pitch in. So yeah, like yeah. those things are relevant to investors. They don't, they don't care. Right. Let's be brutally honest. Come on. They don't care. <laughs> yeah, they really don't care. Like they talk about team a lot when they make investments, but it's not so much about like, like why you are right to solve this problem. It's more about why are you somebody who can start and build successful businesses? That's really what right. they're looking for. Right. And, um, you take Jack Dorsey, for example, Twitter and mm -hmm. Square are like completely different companies. Like mm -hmm. you would think that somebody would very two different profiles would build those companies. Right. But that's yeah. not why that's the thing. Like successful entrepreneurs can be given this, you know, this problem and mm -hmm. can go and build a business around it. And that's what investors are looking for. So, yeah. you know, for yeah. me, when I see my first, um, startup in clean energy and then my second one was in fintech which was different it wasn't about you know uh how i have all this experience and this and that and that it was more about i built this clean tech company and now i want to build a fintech company and this is how i can do it and this is how we can scale mm -hmm. that's what yeah. they're really looking for and i think yeah. a lot of founders yeah. miss the mark on telling that piece yeah well it's kind of like what happened if you like jack dorsey is a really good example because twitter is actually a pivot Right. I mean, it was originally Odeo, which was a podcasting company, and they pivoted to become Twitter. And he added Square as, you know, another business. And it's the same with uh, with uh, Stuart Butterfield, who did Flickr. Right. Flickr was supposed to be a gaming company. They pivoted to be Flickr and then he's launched Slack. So, I mean, Slack is a great example of a, you know, a, a founder. And he, he's still trying to get that gaming company off the ground, I think, is the last <laughs> I heard, you know, like the original concept. Like, when can I do this? Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's 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 the um, it's the. Uh, track record, right? Obviously, it's a track record. I mean, and it doesn't necessarily need to be the same business. I mean, Flickr and Slack are completely different, right? I mean, Twitter and Square are completely different, like you say. It's the you know ability to execute on that. So, on that note, I mean, someone who's already had a bunch of businesses, whether they failed or succeeded, has a track record. But what if you don't have a track record? What if this is your first startup, and you know, maybe you were working at a corporate for 20 years, but this idea has been stuck in the back of your head and you've wanted to do it. And now you're finally doing it because it's, you know, coronavirus related or something. I don't know, whatever it is. There's some reason why you've decided now's the time and you're building your team. You know, how do, how do you, how do you start that off? How, how do you work without pointing to a past success or failure and going, you know, I'm the right person for this? Yeah, so with my first one I can point to is um, I worked on it on the side for two years before going into it full time. And so I didn't like have a pitch deck and go to investors with in the beginning. I wanted to see myself like, is there, is it, will this work? <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what I wanted to know myself because I think a lot of people think about like why investors should be interested, but not enough people think about the founder's time and what if and whether they feel that this is worth pursuing because 
the founder is going to be working on this more than anybody else. And you're talking about like, you know, 60, 80 hour weeks for like a couple of years, you know, the founder themselves really needs to believe in this business. And Mm -hmm. when you have an idea, a founder doesn't necessarily want to put all their eggs into it. They want to test it. So that's how I felt about my uh, adventure. Um, so um, when I was working in Uganda, I saw this problem that local entrepreneurs there didn't have access to, um, to finances and mentorship to build their businesses and clean energy. Um, that problem drove me nuts. Um, and I had an idea for a solution, but I knew I needed to test it. So actually what I did is I ran a crowdfund. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> and, yeah, I really raised $2,000. Huh? Yeah. That's yeah, a great idea. And- I've heard that with, uh, in fact, not even big companies are doing it right now, right? I mean, I think Gillette uh, did it. I think they went to Kickstarter or whatever, and they threw something on there and like, wow, I mean, it's like, wh- why not? I mean, crowdfunding is, is a beautiful example of, you know, testing demand, right? So go, go on. I didn't want to interrupt your story. Exactly. No, 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 thank you. Uh, so um, for this, I had a very good reason why people would get money, which was let's help we got in get access to electricity, which is tugs at the heartstrings. So I only raised $2,000 for it. Um, and I did a pilot in Uganda while I was living in the US and uh, basically sent that money to an entrepreneur there to help them grow their energy business. And then I would do phone calls with them um, and WhatsApp, but like on a nightly basis um, until they were successful. And that was the goal was if nice. I gave a loan and I gave my time and mentorship to this entrepreneur, would they be able to grow their business? And, um, and then when they were ready to repay the loan, um, they said, you know, there's another entrepreneur in our community <laughs> who could also use this loan. And they were also building a clean energy business. And um, I thought, yeah, let's do it. Give, I didn't know anything about this entrepreneur, but this other, this one I was working with was backing them. So I was like, sure, social trust, let's do it. <laughs> so yeah. they gave them the loan that they were supposed to pay me. And then they, um, and then they uh, uh, sent me like receipts and things to prove that they sent them the money. And, uh, and then the exact same thing happened. And I would get on the phone with that entrepreneur and they were building their business and they were using that money to buy solar products and um and then it just kept growing and then that mm-hmm. entrepreneur said i have another friend <laughs> who has an energy business this happened seven nice. times seven oh, times with one loan in mm-hmm. a two-year period and i thought okay there's clearly something here if two thousand dollars can revolve seven times in two years, imagine what a hundred thousand dollars would do. Right. Right. Know, yeah, or a million dollars. You know, so so I got very excited. And then that's when I realized myself that this was something worth investing time into was when um and then I had data from the seven entrepreneurs who use that right. one. And then when I went to to uh to to find the money, um I used that data to show like look this works. Like I told that story and then um, I was able to get money. So Unilever invested in, in the idea, basically the pilot, mm-hmm. to scale nice. it up from seven entrepreneurs to, to 50. That was the goal. Mm-hmm. And, so, uh, and so that's how I started. And so I think that's what I like to tell other entrepreneurs who don't have a track record. Is if you can do small pilots and test your idea and show that there's demand or that it works, um, and then use that evidence to get funding, 
then then you can do it. But if you just come with an idea, you it's very hard to get funded. Oh yeah, <laughs> you really yeah, yeah. So you really need to show that the that that work has been done, even on a small scale. And you can you can raise like two thousand, five thousand, use your money, your family's money to just prove that out. Then yeah. um, then you can raise them, and you actually need. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big fan of so it's like the MVP, right? But the 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 difference, I think a lot of people think that they have to really have the thing working before yeah. it actually, you know, uh, you know, they launch it. But the reality is, is that you don't necessarily need to do that. You can just come up with a fake version of it and yeah. just, just as, just as a sense demand. I mean, I think this happened with, um, Aardvark. I don't know if you've heard of Aardvark, but it was this, uh, like Q and a type service. It was almost like Quora, uh, but it was live chat. And what would happen? And I knew somebody who worked there and they were bought by Google. Uh, by the way, and basically the way they were they started was that he wanted to set up a service where people would ask questions and other people would answer them right and it would be like a they would create a, a an app where I would ask a question that would match you up with somebody else who would answer the question and that was the app that they wanted to build, but to test to see if this worked, they basically just set up a website which which collected questions and then they would answer it on the back on the back end and they they're the ones who are like fake answering the questions like they were from other people so they were trying to sort of prove the model just by using off-the-shelf tools like Word, wordpress or whatever and i think that's that's what a lot of uh, entrepreneurs thinking oh i have to go all the way and i have to spend twenty-five thousand to build this app and i have to build this and i have to build this i build this but you can test all of these in a very small way using free off-the-shelf tools just to see what happens. Or you can go the route yeah. of Kickstarter or crowd, crowdfund it and say, well, if there's enough interest to actually get to the crowdfunding, then there's probably more interest. So in your case, it was like you, you, you do a small version of it or a, a, a minimal model of it, see if it works, and then there's your data to prove that it, that it actually works at this level, and then all you need to do is scale. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs sort of they they want to get there first before they actually test it. And I think that the 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 testing in the marketplace and getting that response is is super key. I mean, if you don't if you don't do that, then you know how is anybody going to look at you and go, yeah, this is going to be a great idea, right? So 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 yeah. in, so it sounds like you did a lot of manual work. Is that true? Like. You see, there was a lot of manual work on the back end, and then, and you weren't actually building an app; you were building a business, right? So you weren't building a okay. So and then and then so when you scaled, did you just add more people, or how did you like? Where did you go yeah. when you started scaling? Add people. That was key for me because um, uh, that was like the first thing I did when I got that my first check was I need to hire like a deputy basically in in Uganda, right. and so um, uh. I uh, did not have co-founders. I knew that I had to build a really strong management team to start and then filling mm -hmm. in key roles as we continue to grow. Um, so I invested a lot of time personally in team building. And mm -hmm. especially because I was living in the United States and not in Uganda, I knew I needed a team that could do the day-to-day -day without me because I couldn't do the day-to-day -day work. So all those phone calls right. I was doing at night with the entrepreneurs, was going to be their job. So I had to like teach them how to do this. And so when I was building it, like I was actually very internally focused. Um, so um, I mean, of course I had like the funder relationships to deal with, but I wasn't looking um, to, you know, 
I was really focused internally and not externally because I wanted to really build a rock solid team. And that was key mm-hmm. for me. And, right. um, and, and, and I, I was just really fortunate to find really, really awesome people there who just mm-hmm. loved what we were doing, our mission and, um, quit banking jobs to join. <laughs> and, uh, which is actually a big deal in Uganda. That is, a, like that's a, a huge, yeah. that is huge uh, thumbs up for your business when you get you know bank executives like leaving leaving banks and coming to what you're doing so that's great that's, that's yeah amazing. exactly yeah. so it was really validating and awesome for me to see that and so um yeah and they were just so passionate about it and that's really what i realized is what made that team so strong was their passion and conviction for the problem you're trying to solve and our mm-hmm. solution versus people just looking for a job um, and I think that's really Excellent. important in the beginning st- stages. Yeah. You want people who really believe in what you're doing versus like, I want to join a startup because, mm-hmm. uh, cause, uh, that's where you'll find the hardest working people. And so, right. um, within two years, I'd say the team was pretty full, fully functional without me involved in the day to day. And mm-hmm. then I started being more external in terms of the work. And- so you had, uh, it sounds like a, you grew organically through referrals, right? I mean, wh- when did you decide, or maybe you never did decide, to sort of expand into some kind of sales operation? Because did you go beyond the referrals or was it all, is it all referral business? Oh, the entrepreneurs we were funding? Or are yeah. you talking about? Yeah. Uh, no. So in the beginning, it was referrals because um, that was easy to do. And I didn't have like a system in place to find entrepreneurs. So uh, once the team was in place, we had a system. So we created okay. an application process and a loan due diligence process. It's definitely not as easy now <laughs> for an entrepreneur to get a loan from us as it was a few years ago. <laughs> now they have to like, you know, uh, go through the work of in, in showing our team that they can repay the loan. So, um, so, so there is a, there is a sales process involved. Um, the entrepreneurs, there's, there's more demand than uh, we can supply right now. Um, demand for business loans essentially is extremely high. Uh, and, uh, and we were offering low interest rates. So your 12%, that's what we were doing, 12 to 16%, which is incredibly uh, 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 attractive in Uganda. So um, and for us, it was about making money on the interests of the loans. It was more about, um, because then, then you start turning to predatory models. For us, yep. it was more about building add-on services that we could then charge. Mm-hmm. So, so that was your successful startup, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, and you said you also had one that didn't go so well. Yeah, that was a fintech one. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe give us an overview of what you think went wrong and what you might have done differently. Yeah, yeah. so the, this was actually started as a kind of a project of adventure. My first startup was, you know, we were had this time-consuming loan due diligence process, and I felt, you know, if these entrepreneurs just were using like a QuickBooks like app that was catered for their user, for their persona, then we could leverage that data and it'd be so much faster for us to make decisions. Mm-hmm. That was to solve a problem that we had as a, a lender. And then I talked to other lenders and they all were like, yes, this would be a great problem. This is a problem for us and it'd be a great solution for us. Um, but I think, because maybe we talked about this last time, but like, you getting getting interest from uh potential customers 
is always there, getting willingness, willingness to pay is a different story. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all these banking, banking uh, clients that at first were like, yeah, we love this. Like, you know, and I talked a little bit earlier about how banks are incredibly risk averse. I didn't like, cause they, they talk very differently when you have conversations with them. They're like very interested in FinTech. They're really excited about new innovations. They want to test everything. So it's like, it came to me like, oh man, this could be a really big business, you know, like let's, let's mm -hmm. create a QuickBooks for Africa and like sell the data to lenders, like boom, like yeah. huge market. Yeah. And <laughs> that, that's why I got really excited by They're that. They're leading you on. They're leading you on these guys. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I got really excited by that. And I thought, wow, like, you know, I think I got too in love with like the market size and the problem, but didn't focus enough on the solution. And so I did build an MVP as an app and I did what you said. I, spent like 25,000 building this app that um, I think was, it was, it's a good app, but I think the, the businesses I wanted to use this app were still not convinced themselves that they needed an app like this to manage their business. Um, and I thought that they would be excited about it because it would mean they don't longer have to do pen and paper bookkeeping. But then I didn't understand that that actually wasn't that big of a pain point for them as I had thought. Mm um and a lot of them you know they work on a cash in cash out kind of day by day basis so like projections and financials and all these cool things the app could do for them wasn't actually that interesting they didn't really, they didn't really care about it <laughs> yeah they didn't really think about it so um what was, very, model? what was the monetization model i mean were you how were you were you were you selling the app or were you selling access to the app or how were you no, monetizing? I was selling um, the data to the to lenders. So oh, okay. the so, projections and all those things are incredibly interesting to lenders, but they're not interesting to the users. So that right. was a problem is you know, I would do a pilot with a uh, with a bank and they would actually they would actually introduce it to some of their lend lendies, borrowers, mm -hmm. and the usage would just not be there. And right. so that's when I realized, oh man, we built an MVP for our for what we thought a customer would be. We didn't build an MVP for a user, right, uh, right. <laughs> which is hard when you're doing like a B to B to C type business model, yeah. um, because you have to kind of satisfy both ends. And we were too focused on the the monetization end and not enough on just like getting users to use it end. So right. um, and. And we knew that we had to work on this piece, but at the same time, we'd had very little runway. And I thought, you know, if I could just get investors interested in this B2B side and just focus on signing like awesome pilots, like we did one with Unilever, we did one with World Vision. So like, it looked great, you know, on paper. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that would be enough. And then we, we got the money, then we can like figure out how to get the users interested. And I think that was, that obviously didn't work because the investors wanted to see the users too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, so, and so like just signing up the big customers to show that we could potentially win contracts wasn't enough to, right. to close around. And, um, and by the, by the end when we really realized, okay, we need to scrap what we've done and like really focus on the user and build something that they would use and mm -hmm. ignore the kind of the B2B side, it was too late and um, we were out of money and I personally felt like this was too hard of a business. Like right. it shouldn't be this hard. Right. If you want to 
<laughs> yeah, well, I mean, with InVenture, my loan cycled to seven entrepreneurs within two years with me doing very little work. Here, mm -hmm. I was doing so much work and couldn't get users. And it just, yeah. it was, just, it, was it became really, um, it no longer was fun. And, yeah. you know, when you're yeah. a founder, you want to like, wake up excited to do what you're working on. And toward yeah. the end of last year, I was like, really unhappy to work on. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so I realized, you know what, this is still a huge problem. And, you know, I'm sure another entrepreneur will figure this out and have this billion dollar business that I couldn't make. But, you know, my mental health is important too. So that's a really interesting because there's a, there's so many differences between those two models because it's kind of like, uh, you know, with a, with a model that failed, you were trying to build uh, something you're trying to build an app, which basically did a lot of your legwork for you. But the business, the underlying business is sound, right? It really is sound because the first thing you were doing was working, right? You were making, you were making money, you were making loans, you know, everything was, was just crunching along. It's like, as soon as you started thinking about, well, maybe we can automate some of this stuff. That's when everything started falling apart. And it's, it's really interesting that I think that's probably what a lot of uh, startup founders are thinking. They're thinking, Oh, if we could just automate this, then I don't have to do any work and money will just flow in. But <laughs> I think the reality is, is that you have to make sure that whatever you're doing works, even if you have to do it manually, and then whatever you're doing works, then you have to sort of really selectively decide which elements you can replace with automation before you can say, you know, this is, this is, because I'm sure that if you're looking back on it now, you're probably saying, well, if instead of doing this, we would have done this or this or this, or like these automated other elements that maybe saved a little money here and there, it would have been, it would have continued to be more successful instead of like going for, you know, like you said, you were talking to the banks, the banks were your customers, not your customers. Your customers had to use it, but if they weren't using it and there was no really compelling, there was no compelling reason for them to use it. So mm -hmm. that's why it fell apart. But did you say, would you, did you do, did you do any market research for with your actual customers, like your end users? And they said it was good or they said, uh, we don't need this or what did they say? No, they, uh, they, uh, were very similarly like, Oh, this is great. Like this seems like it would solve all my problems. Like I got a lot of, um, maybe that was part of the problem is I didn't, I don't have a, like, I'm not a skilled UX researcher and maybe I needed somebody to do that because um, right. the, uh, the, the responses I was getting was motivating me and, uh, and it, and I, I don't think people are very truthful when you talk to them face to face about something you're working on, you know, mm -hmm. people want to be encouraging. So, yep. you know, when I'm talking to, you know, small businesses and like, would they use this? They, you know, they would tell me their problems. They would tell me, their um uh why they like the app but they wouldn't tell me what they didn't like about it and i kept pressing right. them what not like about it like what what you know and and like i couldn't get that response and that was so then i just kind of was like okay i guess it'll work then and i i don't think i was able to drill down to like what they didn't like about it effectively and um and i think also just this a lot of assumptions I had to, because I know inventory is such a huge issue small businesses deal with because they don't track it well. They don't know um, how much they're spending on it. They uh, misplace things all the time. 
So I thought, you know, this would be a great piece for the app. Start mm -hmm. with inventory and then, you know, as they build out their inventory, then they can start making sales and then include that data into the app. And what I realized after we launched was that was actually the thing people were least interested in. They were more interested in their sales. Yeah. So, but because we had people enter their inventory first, there'd be a massive drop off because nobody really wanted to go through the work of counting their inventory. And <laughs> even though they should, uh, <laughs> they didn't want to do that. And so, um, and so that was a insight I did not get when I did my research and I wish I had because I probably would have designed the app very differently and maybe it would be different now where I'd be yeah. with it but but well that's in the past. Well, there's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a couple there's a couple of elements there right I mean you're right I mean, in that people don't people are not a lot of times they're not truthful when they're talking to you not because they they want to they they really want to be untruthful. It's just because they want to, like you said, they want to encourage you. They want to, you know, they think like based on what they've seen, they think it's going to help them. Right. And a lot of times, I mean, we talked about this before with like Dan O'Reilly's book, Predictably Irrational, where, you know, people will, will put responses down. They don't necessarily believe in just to, just to get a good result at the end. Right. So they feel that, that, that that's going to be a better, better result. But have you, Hello, are you still there? Uh-oh, you cut out. Can you hear me? Chris? Yes. Are you there? I think I lost my video. Hello. I can hear you. Oh, no. <laughs> Hello? Hello? Oh, I guess uh, Zoom is uh, having trouble. Can you hear me? Hmm. Too many people using it, I guess. That's the problem. Hello? Hopefully we can, uh, and Ariel will be able to rejoin us in a second. Hello? Hi. Hi can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yes, I can hear you. You cut out when you started talking about Riley's book. Too many, too many zooms going on at once. I think that's the problem. <laughs> oh, are you still there? Yeah. Hello. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me now? All right. Yes. Okay. Cool. I forget where I was now. Yeah. So people. Anna Riley. Yeah, so people will 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 just make stuff stuff up. Like when you give them a survey, they'll just make stuff up. So a lot of times you can't trust everything that they're that they're that they're giving you. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, you still need to get that consumer feedback. So it's really difficult to to do it in such a way where where you're getting realistic consumer feedback. And I think I think that the key there is that you have to go to people who don't don't know you at all, don't know anything about you, are not connected with you, and just sort of disconnect yourself from them so they can get real objective responses, right? And that's hard to do because your initial set of customers were people that you knew. Are you still there? I think I lost you. Are I'm you still here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Did you did you miss okay, all of that? You were kind of slow choppy. <laughs> <laughs> am I still choppy? Oh man. No, I'm okay. Can you hear me now? 
Yes. Okay. So you would have, would you have gone to, I don't know if you caught what I was saying, but um, if you go to more objective customers, like people who are more disconnected from you, do you think that would have been, that would have worked out better? Probably. And yeah, that's probably a good point. We should have done that. Um, we actually did try a little bit, but um, a lot of, it was actually kind of hard to get people we didn't know to talk to us. <laughs> they were like, oh, I'm running my shop. Like I'm busy. Like I want yeah, to talk to you. And I'm be like, oh, we had to give you like five bucks for your time. And then I'm like, well, my, my boss is coming back. So there's a lot of logistical issues, but we we probably could have worked on that harder. I think we just got intimidated. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but we, the, the small mom and pop retailers, it's a really, really tough market to get into because they're all so busy, yeah. right? They're, I mean, they're totally swamped. And I think another part piece of it is human nature too, right? Because a lot of people, they want stuff done for them. And they ha if you give them anything that requires them to do more work, it's really difficult to get them to do that. And not, not just small businesses, it's like anybody. It, you know, you have to, and that's what I think about the, there's been situations where I'm in meetings where people are coming up with ideas and they're like, well, the customer should do this or the customer should do that. And the customer it's like, no, the customer can't do any more. The customer is already doing enough. It's time to take stuff off their plate as opposed to, you know, putting it, putting that on their plate. So if you can take things off people's plates and, and, and make them give them less work to do, then, you know, you're, you're on the way. I mean, I think that's what was happening with your other business. It was successful, right? I mean, you were helping them get loans. I mean, they didn't have to go through the legwork that you were going through for them. So I think a good lesson there is that, you know, you have to get, do, make sure that your customers do less work, right? I mean, is, if your customers are doing less work, I mean, it, it plays to human nature, human, human nature. People don't want to do more work. They want to do less work. And if you can get them to do less work, if you can take it off their plates, then that's, that's always, always a good thing. Yeah. I think also I, that that whole adoption curve kind of threw me in the wrong direction, to be honest, um, and probably a lot of founders, because, you know, I was thinking, oh, well, if that person's probably just a late adopter, like, that's why mm -hmm. they're not agreeing to it. Like, and I think yeah. probably a lot of founders think, oh, like, if I could just figure out who the early adopters are, or the innovators who would be interested in my product, then I can worry about those people later. Um, the problem is, is I found it really hard to figure out who my early adopters were. Like we tried really hard and I thought, you know, let's just get the app out there and whoever downloads the app is obviously an early adopter, you know, like that was my thinking. So even though like what you said was going after these, you know, uh, uh, trying to make these people do less work. But I was thinking, you know, like early adopters are willing to work with crappy products. And, you know, that's what we're told by Silicon Valley that, yeah. <laughs> you know, like early adopters are happy to work with MVPs. And, and, yeah. Um, yeah. and I, I'm not saying the early adopters are a myth. I just think that there's too much emphasis placed on them. And I yeah. think to build a really scalable business, I think you do kind of have to start thinking about late adopters from the beginning and how you would acquire yeah. them. Because, yeah. um, you can't survive on early adopters alone. And I think we're too focused on finding those people versus, you know, satisfying a minimum viable problem <laughs> that these customers have and just like solving that pain point and, you know, and getting them to, and, and, and it doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to be somebody who is super tech savvy and just like wants to try a bunch of things. 
So, I, yeah, just wanted to add that piece. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so, so it's interesting you should mention that because it's a lot of, a lot of startup founders think that this sort of innovative new idea is the way to go. Like this cool, new, innovative idea. And that's why, I think that's one of the reasons why you need early adopters because they're also into the cool, new, innovative idea. Yeah. But those first, first, uh, first movers, a lot of times, are, they're not the most profitable businesses. They're not the best businesses. It's the second and third, fourth movers who've perfected whatever the first ones did. I mean, look at Facebook and MySpace, you know, Google and Yahoo. You know, they moved out, they, you know, they're fast followers. They came along and said, you know, I'm going to do this better. And if, if you think about it, they actually leverage off the, 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 um, the first people in the space because the first people in the space have already sort of plowed the fields and gotten people ready for this other way of doing things, which may actually work better. So that well, the fast followers I, are the ones who are fat, ones who are more profitable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you caught any of that. <laughs> you broke up a little bit, but I think I understood. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we're, we're almost into the hour. So, we'll make it, up. but. <laughs> so, Tell us a little bit of what you're doing now and how you could, so are you helping other startup founders now or what are you, what are you doing nowadays? Yeah, I'm looking for new opportunities in the clean in the tech startup ecosystem. Um, Cause I have so much experience um, as a two times founder that I can leverage that experience in supporting, you know, other founders, especially mission driven ones. Um, so yeah, I'm looking for opportunities in that space. Um, I'm noodling on an idea for another startup, but won't be a startup. It'll be more like my idea the first time I test it, very small, pilot it. I could say, um, I could probably pilot it with very little money, so I don't even mm. need to crowdfund for it. But that's what I really realized from my second startup was if you ever want, if you have a new idea, just, just, you know, don't even think about it as a startup. Think about it as a project, a pilot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then once you're convinced that this project pilot is has teeth, then you can start thinking about it as a startup. So yeah. that's, no, that's, that's, that's a, a good way of thinking about it. That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. If it has, if it has teeth, I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, anything else you want to uh, let the listeners know or are we good? We're good. If anyone wants to contact me, um, maybe Chris, you can give them my email. Yeah, no, I'll add it to the, uh, I, I can connect to you on LinkedIn and all that good stuff if anybody wants to contact you and get some assistance. So you're also doing, uh, you're also helping startups with their pitches too, right? I mean, it's not just you doing your own stuff, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I definitely advised um, startups before. Um, I went through an accelerator last year and sometimes I get called back to help startups and they're on their um, portfolio um i find this especially with uh, more like sciencey technical founders i have a really hard time pitching so <laughs> i'm good at helping yeah. those types to figure out how to very neatly explain what they do in three minutes so that's nice the I have. Yeah. yeah i don't know if I, to- I told you this last time but i, I there's a guy who i knew how to start up it took him 30 minutes to explain his business it's like ridiculous i mean if you, I if can you help him. <laughs> yeah, if it takes 30 minutes then then i don't know if it's viable or not so yeah <laughs> awesome well, it was great talking with you it was like a lot of fun and sorry about the technical glitches but you know with everything going on i'm sure zoom is overloaded so it was great talking with you yeah great thank you with thank you, you so much thank you, thank you for so the uh, fun conversation <laughs>
Oh no, we're losing it again. Oh no. <laughs> hey, I'll let you know. Uh, so I'll, I'll 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 edit it up and I'll set it up and uh, I'll okay. let you know when it's ready so you get so you can share it amongst your uh, amongst your followers and everything. Oh, so perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I was gonna Thanks say so this much. probably needs to be edited. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll take a few bits of that. Don't worry about it. Or I could just leave yeah. it as is. Who knows? I mean, it's like, this is like the coronavirus special, right? I mean, this is what you get. Yeah. <laughs> the time of low bandwidth. Anyways, thank you so much.